0: If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke. We are studying the book of Luke here at Woodland Hills Church. We just go through it methodically, verse by verse. We're looking now at this passage from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30, which is really where Jesus gives his inaugural address, if you will. He's launching, officially launching his ministry here. He's been doing some things out and about. He's got a little reputation going. But here he has just gotten done with the temptation uh, uh, piece. He's now qualified uh, to uh, embark on his ministry. He returns to his hometown, and here he gives, in his hometown synagogue, this uh, inaugural address. And I want to entitle this message, The Holistic Kingdom, because that's what Jesus is announcing here, a kingdom that involves everything. And I'm just going to read verses 18 through 22, and I'll be reading from the TNIV version. And it says this The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. He has sent me to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the year of Jubilee where all debts are erased. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him for a dramatic moment. Then he began to speak to them, saying, Today, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Or we saw last week, it could be translated. All bore witness against him and were shocked at the gracious words that came from his lips. And they asked themselves, isn't this Joseph's son? And then we saw last week that Jesus, immediately after this passage, he picks a fight with this crowd. And he says, oh, you'll probably want me to do miracles like I've done in other places. And you're going to say to me that proverb, heal yourself, physician. And uh, I'm here to tell you that a prophet's not without honor except in his own hometown. And then he tells them these two apparently random stories about Elisha and Elijah. And he gets the people so mad that they want to throw him off a cliff. Uh, it doesn't really end uh, well with the people of Nazareth. So last week we tried to unpack this a little bit, you know, pointing out those kind of odd, some odd features of this passage. Why was Jesus mad at them and, and, and why were they mad at Jesus? And, and we unpack that. And what we suggested last week is that, in fact, that one passage that I mentioned here, should be translated, they bore witness against Jesus and were shocked at his gracious words. Because he left out the judgment part of the passage when he quoted it. And that's why Jesus responds in a negative way saying, you know, watch it. You know, uh, uh, it's, it's often the insiders, the hometowners who miss what God is doing. And the two stories he tells about Elisha and Elijah are related to that, to that point. Because they're examples of God bypassing the insiders of Israel to bring good news to pagan outsiders. Which is why these insiders, these hometowners, these people of Nazareth, get so mad at Jesus, they want to to kill him. And the point of all that we saw last week, as we unpacked all the weirdness of this passage, the point of it is, is is that the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating here is one that will be directed primarily towards outsiders. It's directed towards everybody, but it's going to be primarily outsiders who are going to be open to it. Those who are secure in their own righteousness and who are just so sure they got God in a box and are so sure that God is on our side and against them, those are going to be the ones who are going to tend to miss what God is doing with this kingdom revolution that Jesus is bringing here. Whereas those who are Everyone assumes outsiders, those who make no claim to their own righteousness, those who are least inclined to stand before God in their own righteousness, those who are least inclined to judge others and to moralize over them. They're going to be the ones who, on the whole, are going to be the recipients of the kingdom. Those who know they're sick are open to having a physician heal them, whereas those who think they're already well, they're the ones that are in danger. So we looked at odd things about this passage last week to unpack that message. I want to now look at another odd aspect of this passage, and it's this. Here Jesus is giving his inaugural speech, his inaugural sermon. He is here really giving the charter for what his ministry is going to be all about. He's giving, as it were, the Magna Carta of his ministry, his marching orders of his ministry. He's here summarizing what he's going to be about. This is what he assumes his ministry is going to look like, and this is what he assumes his followers' ministry is going to look like, because this is what it looks like when the kingdom shows up. This is the year of Jubilee. What is odd, I think, is that if you listen to it carefully, it doesn't sound all that, excuse me, but it doesn't sound all that evangelical. It doesn't sound, Jesus doesn't sound like a born-again Christian. Uh, In fact, he sounds liberal. Uh, If if you ask the the kind of typical modern American evangelical, what's the core of the gospel? They'll say, as you summarize, what is the gospel about? They'll probably say something like, well, Jesus died for your sins so that you can have a personal relationship with him. And that'll be it. But if you ask Jesus, what is the core of the gospel? What is the gospel all all about? Well, he gave it right here. It's about this year of Jubilee, and it's good news to the poor, and good news to the oppressed, and good news to the blind, and uh, it, 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 it's setting people free. Um, it's all about that. Now, Jesus, of course, knows that he's come to die for people's sin, and Jesus, of course, wants a personal relationship with all of us, and him dying for our sins and our having a personal relationship with him on that basis is all important, yes. But in the ministry of Jesus, it's got a different feel from what it has in many circles today, because in the ministry of Jesus, it's surrounded by a lot of other things that flow out of that. In the ministry of Jesus, you can't talk about the good news to you without immediately mention, mentioning the good news that's supposed to flow through you to everyone else. The good news is about bringing liberation to oppressed people and healing to the sick and diseased and sight to the blind. And, 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 and good news to the captives and those who are imprisoned. In, in, in Jesus' ministry, as he lives out this Luke 4 kingdom, he just doesn't look, uh, at least not in every respect, like a born-again, evangelical, modern American Christian. What did Jesus do in his ministry? He, he proclaimed that the kingdom of God was here. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He manifested the kingdom by hanging out with prostitutes. He manifested the kingdom by hanging out with tax collectors. He manifested the kingdom by hanging out with the so-called lowlifes. He, he touched lepers. He spoke well about women. Everything that Jesus was about was countercultural. He broke all the rules. Um, he, didn't, he, he doesn't look that you know nice and tidy and straight-laced and religious. He doesn't look like a good born-again Christian. But even more surprising, it's what's absent from a lot of his ministry. As Jesus is out there feeding people and ministering to people and bringing healing to people, he doesn't usually, in fact, he doesn't ever after the healing or the deliverance say, okay, now here's the four spiritual laws Will you sign on the dotted line. Uh, he, he doesn't go to seal the deal right away. Yes, he invites people to follow him. But he's more interested in manifesting with his life and with his power the truth of who, 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 the, who God is and what the kingdom's about than, than he is in right immediately getting people to uh, agree with him. He doesn't witness the way that a lot of uh, modern evangelicals are supposed to witness. Yes, he believes, of course, that he's come to die for our sins. And yes, he believes that we need to have a personal relationship with him. But it's got a totally different emphasis in the ministry of Jesus from what it has in a lot of circles today. The main difference is this. Jesus has a holistic vision of the kingdom, whereas today many American Christians have, a much more narrow, a myopic vision of the kingdom. We tend to reduce the kingdom down to its what we think are its bare essentials, uh, the minimal deal, if you will. And so we take the truth that Jesus died for our sins and wants a personal relationship with us, and in American religion on the whole, we tend to make that the, the, the all-important thing. And yes, there are other things which are nice, but they're not really as central as this piece about Jesus dying for our sins. They're not saving. They're, they're, they're more ornamental. They're, they're auxiliary, if you will. We ought to do it, but, 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 but they're not really as, as important as, as this, this piece about him dying for us. So we artificially abstract out of the whole kingdom this piece about our personal relationship with Jesus, and it ends up being almost the total content of the kingdom. So we have a myopic vision of the kingdom, which, which is uh, about Jesus dying for us and our, our need for a personal relationship with him. Jesus has that peace for sure. That's all important. But see, in the real kingdom, our relationship with Jesus opens up the avenue for God's life to be poured into us and therefore flow through us, and so it inevitably and necessarily impacts everything else. We become a conduit for God's life. So the kingdom, and you can't ever separate those two things. So yes, the kingdom is centered on the cross. It's centered on our personal relationship with Jesus because it's centered on the fact that he died for our sins. But for just that reason, the kingdom of God also is a kingdom that impacts blindness, that brings good news to the spiritually and the physically blind, that brings good news to those who are in captivity, that brings good news to those who are sick, that brings good news to those who are diseased, that brings good news to the social outcast, that brings good news, year of jubilee uh, good news, to those who are at the losing end of religious and social judgment. It brings good news to to those who suffer under injustice and poverty and oppression. The, Jesus has a holistic kingdom where you can't separate one thing from the other. It's artificial to do that. It's all part of one reality. The kingdom of God that Jesus brings and that we're to be manifesting in our life, is, it can't be narrowed in myopically on a certain belief that we have. It rather involves a whole lifestyle and therefore impacts everything in our life and through us it impacts everything in, in social life and everything on this globe. The kingdom of God, in other words, if we're, if we're doing it Jesus style, and what other kind of style do we want to follow? If we're doing it Jesus style, the kingdom of God is about everything because God is the Lord of everything, and he wants to make, make everything the dome in which he is king, and that's what I mean by the kingdom of God. It, attach, it touches everything. Yes, certainly God wants to get you right with, with, with him. Jesus wants to get you right with the Father, but he also wants to use you to get the world right with God. Yes, God wants to forgive you, but he also wants to use you to bring forgiveness to others. And he also wants to use you to bring justice into this world. Yes, certainly, God wants to get you fit for heaven in the next life. But also, precisely because he's doing that, he wants to use you to bring heaven into this life. Amen? Yes, yes, God wants your life. God wants your life to be aligned with his will. He wants his will being done in your life. But through you, he wants his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Yes, the jubilee year is good news for you, but it's also good news for all people, and he wants to use you to bring that good news to all people. It's jubilee for you, but it's also jubilee for the world. It's also jubilee for the oppressed. It's also jubilee for the blind. And see, when we lose that holistic, interwoven, Uh, the the kind of tapestry that is this this multifaceted, beautiful kingdom, and we reduce it down to this one thing, personal relationship, you know, through his death, we distort the gospel. We make it an unbiblical thing. We take the beauty of this holistic gospel and we turn it into a rather ugly, individualistic, me-centered, reductionistic, personal, privatized gospel. And it's simply not the same kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating here in Luke chapter 4. And what's crazy is that if, if you've been conditioned by the myopic you know, American truncated gospel, there's so much of the Bible that you miss because you're not wearing the right spectacles to even notice it. And what we miss more than anything else is largely the holistic kingdom that Jesus is, is talking about here in Luke chapter 4. For example, I'll take you just a couple issues. Poverty. Jesus came to bring good news to the poor. You read the Bible and you find that message all over the place. God cares deeply about the poor and God calls uh, kingdom people, his people, to to, uh, do something about it, to minister to the poor. There are over 3,000 verses in the Bible that address poverty and the responsibility of God's people to minister to the poor. It's all over the place. But you can go to a lot of places in America, a lot of churches in America, and and you can go your whole life and you'll hear every week a sermon about how Jesus died for your sins, but you'll never hear a word about poverty. Something is terribly wrong. Along with that, the second most frequent sin mentioned in the Bible is greed. It goes right along with poverty, about sharing your resources. and, and yet you can go to a lot of places, a lot of religious environments in America, and you'll hear every, every week that Jesus loves you and died for you, and, and, and you can have a personal relationship with him, which is wonderful. That, I, that's wonderful. But you won't hear a word about greed. It's all the more crazy because if there's one sin that America is as a whole guilty of, and if there's one sin that the church in America is guilty of, it's the sin of greed. And yet, it's easy to go to places and hear about the personal relationship and nothing about the call of God to resist this movement of greed that so defines our culture and, and this apathy towards the poor. In America, the gulf between Americans, uh, American lifestyle and the poorest 25% of people on the planet has quadrupled. The gap between us and them has quadrupled in the last 40 years. And yet, in many circles, you won't hear a word about greed. Uh, In that same period of time, the percentage of our gross national product that we give to helping the poorest 25% of people on the planet has decreased 500%. So the richer we get, the more we keep for ourselves. And yet you can go to churches all across America and hear a whole lot about Jesus loving you, but not a word about greed, not a word about poverty. And God bless the churches. They're doing the best they can, but it just shows how we've been conditioned by a myopic gospel, a gospel that doesn't represent the beauty of the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating. It's an individualistic, myopic, truncated, uh, 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 ill-defined gospel. We need to get back to the gospel, which doesn't even for a moment separate what God does to us from what God wants to do through us. The same thing is true of of another thing that Jesus mentions in Luke 4, that the kingdom is supposed to be all about. It's it's about freeing the oppressed. It's about confronting oppression. Here, as Jesus is giving his Magna Carta, the charter for his kingdom, he says it's going to be centrally defined by being good news to the oppressed. In fact, really, all the things that Jesus mentions in Luke chapter 4 are various forms of oppression. And you read the gospel, and that is all that Jesus was about. And our main call in life is to imitate him, to, be an, to let him be an example of us. Jesus was all about liberating people, whether it was from physical diseases or whether it was from demonic oppression or whether it was from social oppression. Jesus was about coming against it to manifest the dome in which God is king. Every relationship Jesus had broke a, uh, a, a, a social taboo or a religious taboo. Jesus touches lepers, and you're not supposed to do that. Uh, Jesus uh, uh, speaks well and honors women. Uh, in ways that are so countercultural. He treats with honor and dignity even women of of ill repute. He speaks well of non-Jews. He uses them as some of the heroes in his own teaching. He speaks well even of a Roman centurion who's a captain of the army that's oppressing Israel, saying, never have I seen an Israel faith like this man. Everything Jesus does and everything Jesus teaches is, is like a revolt against the social system, insofar as that social system does not align with God's will. His life and his ministry and his teachings are all about coming against oppression and liberating the oppressed. And yet you can go to a whole lot of places in America and uh, hear a whole lot about Jesus dying for your sins and and the beauty of a personal relationship with him, and that's good insofar as it goes. But it don't go far enough because to have that personal relationship means that the life of God is flowing in you and through you, and the life of God is revealed right here in this passage where the life of God confronts oppression and sets people free. Yes, Jesus died for you personally, But he also died to to free the oppressed. He also died to end oppression. Jesus died to to end the racialized structures that keep people oppressed. He died to end the hostility between people groups. He died to end apartheid structures. Jesus died for your sins. Yes, praise God for that. But he also died to unite within himself all the different people groups and put on display the glory of the multifaceted uh, uh, humanity that that God created and that Jesus died for. And this isn't some peripheral, secondary part of the Bible storyline. This is a central part of the storyline. It's one of the main pieces of the narrative of the Bible, that God is about reversing Babel. That's what the whole Day of Pentecost thing is about, with them speaking in different languages. God is, is, is reversing Babel. And wherever the Spirit of God reigns, Babel is being reversed. And everything Jesus was about was about reversing that and ending oppression. And yet you can go to a lot of places and you'll hear a lot about Jesus dying for your sins, but nothing about this. Folks, we need to get back to the holistic vision of the kingdom. One that addresses your personal relationship with Jesus, absolutely. Because if that's not happening, you're not going to be getting the life of God to to change anything. But we can't even emphasize, we can't even mention the, the personal dimension of the kingdom of God without immediately saying... Ah, the kingdom of God is about you, but it's also, it's also about ending racism. It's also about addressing poverty. It's also about addressing greed. It's also about addressing religious judgment. It's also about caring for the environment because that was one of the first uh, job descriptions that God gave us. It's also about social structures. It's about everything because God's about everything and he's Lord of everything. And our job is to be taking back everything uh, to, to put on display the beauty of Jesus Christ. Amen? Our job. Our job is to put on display the kingdom, to live and embody the kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean that it's our job to fight over what government should do about these issues. Because Jesus never did that. It's our job to live the truth about all these issues and to, to live it out in the world. It's our job to live individually and collectively Individually and in our small groups and in our larger group congregation to live out what good news looks like. We are to live out reconciliation. We're to live out outrageous generosity. We are to live out and embody the beauty of God's justice. We are to manifest an outrageous love for the outcast. We're to manifest a, a deep, profound concern, in fact, God's concern for the poor. We're to to, to, to manifest God's concern for the sick. We're to manifest God's concern for, for, for the prisoner. We're to manifest the Magna Carta of the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating here in Luke chapter 4. It's the holistic kingdom. It's the beautiful kingdom, and it can't be reduced to one particular thing, it involves everything. And our job is to manifest every bit of that. That's the holistic vision of the kingdom that Jesus is talking about here. The good news, aside from everything I just said, the good news is that uh, I see a lot of uh, evidence, a lot of promising evidence that the church in America is starting to get this. And uh, if you've been around here very long, you know that I don't get optimistic about uh, the church very easy. <laughs> uh, I'm all very optimistic about the kingdom of God because God's in charge of that one. I'm all, you know, but, but uh, the organized religion part of it, I'm not so sure. But, but uh, there is, and a lot of you in the same boat. Uh, and I know that's weird for a pastor to be saying, but I'm trying to be honest with you here. But there's good evidence that, that across America, people are starting to get this. There's a, there's a growing... Uh, uh, fatigue, if not disgust, for this myopic, American-valued-laden uh, distortion of the kingdom. Uh, but rather, people are beginning to get the beauty of the holistic kingdom. Uh, you've got people like Bill Hybels. Thousands of pastors look to Bill Hybels as kind of you know, the leader of the pastors. And, and maybe some of you read this uh, in Christianity Today recently. Uh, but uh, this guy has gotten the reconciliation piece in a beautiful way. Uh, he, he, he is seeing now that... that uh, uh, this isn't a, uh, an addendum to the gospel, a secondary part of the gospel, but it's a central part of the gospel because Jesus died for this. And he said in Christianity Today, he says, I can't believe that I've been in ministry for over 30 years and I didn't see this. It was right in front of me, which just shows you how conditioned our, our perceptions can be. But he's seeing it now, and, and, and he, he's, he's doing some incredibly beautiful things to raise awareness uh, throughout America. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, I love what Rick Warren's doing. He's using the platform that God's given to him with this uh, uh, Purpose Driven Life book. And uh, he's using it to, God's really been doing some work in, in his life and he's using his platform to raise awareness about the AIDS epidemic in Africa and, and saying, hey church, listen, it's, we've been relying on government to fix these things for too long. This is our job and let's mobilize the troops together and, and let's us take responsibility for uh, meeting the needs of the poor and in Jesus' name addressing the AIDS epidemic in, in Africa. It's a beautiful thing all over the place. People are getting this. Uh, it's a cool thing. Bono. <laughs> Amen. Bono, the, the lead singer for U2. And before I say this, I got to tell you that I like jazz fusion and real tight, funky music, and therefore I don't like U2 music very much. It's that fuzzy, sloppy, You know whatever. But fine. I'm really getting to like Bono. This dude, I saw him interviewed with Bill Hybels, as a matter of fact, and here's what he said. First of all, at one point he says, um, you know, uh, if Jesus isn't the Lord of all and the creator of the universe, the savior of the world, then he's a complete lunatic because he went around telling people that he was. And so, yeah, I believe Jesus Christ is Lord and savior. I I never, you know, knew that he had that kind of faith. Uh, Another thing he said was, uh, he goes, you know, I've always been real tight with Jesus. It's Christians I can't stand. (laughs) And... (laughs) It's like, okay, I gotcha. I, I, some of us can relate. Um, he's a very honest guy. But God has put on his heart this passion to do something about AIDS, uh, the AIDS epidemic in Africa. And so he's meeting with leaders all over the world, including religious leaders like Bill Hybels, uh, to raise this awareness, to get the church on board. And even he says... This guy who's been so cynical about the church, he says, You know what? Uh, a lot of you evangelicals are starting to blow my mind. You're starting to destroy my, my categories here because you're starting to show a concern for this and, and people are getting on board. And you've got evangelicals now who are collectively saying we've got to do something about uh, the environmental issues. And, and there is a broadening of the categories that's absolutely beautiful. Uh, so I'm, I'm rather optimistic about this whole thing. Uh, God is moving. And the Twin Cities, let me tell you this, the Twin Cities is not at all exempt from this. In fact, uh, there's some evidence that, that slowly the church in the Twin Cities is, is taking a kind of a leadership role in certain areas, especially in the area of racial reconciliation. Uh, there's a number of things that are going on uh, that are using the, some of the stuff that's going on in the Twin Cities as a, as a pattern and, and a, a prototype for, for how to bring reconciliation uh, throughout uh, America. And we're not at all close to getting there yet, but we're farther ahead than, than a lot of other places. Um, some of you know about this one kingdom endeavor that we did a couple years ago when we, we planted Ephraim Smith's church, the sanctuary with Open Door and, and Salem Covenant Church. And, and that's been a beautiful thing. And you've wondered what's going on since then. And I'll just tell you this. that Every month, we, there's a group of us that have been getting together of, of, of pastors who really uh, believe in the holistic kingdom and that it's our job to, uh, the, for the church to work together to minister to the poor. And it's our job to manifest racial reconciliation. And um, largely under Ephraim's leadership, uh, we, we've gotten together. We've been praying. We've been you know, just, just getting to know one another. And God is doing some cool things there. Uh started with just a handful of people. This last week we had, I think, close to 60 pastors who were there. And, 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 and this is starting to catch on. And now we're asking the question, how do we partner together for the church to begin to act like one church instead of this dismembered franchise, dysfunctional franchise? And how do we work together to minister to the inner city? That's our job. To take care of the poor, that's our job. To be good news to the oppressed, that's our job. And God's doing some cool things. And I'll just tell you, be praying about that. Uh, Because this is starting to pick up momentum. And just be praying that God would continue to give us a clear vision. We at Woodland Hills Church are just growing in in the clarity of our vision of what all this means. Also about what the cost is for us. But that's fine. Uh, And just pray that this continues to catch on. It's about the holistic kingdom. And it's so beautiful when it's manifested. It looks like Luke chapter 4 in flesh. It looks like a corporate giant Jesus manifesting the dome in which God is king. Let me say one more thing about it as I start to wrap this up. That's what we are to be. That's the the holistic vision we're to strive for. But everything hangs. Everything hangs on how we strive for it. The kingdom of God is not just about a what, it's about a how. Um, To proclaim the good news to the oppressed means you, you will be proclaiming bad news to the oppressors. Or at least they're going to hear it like that. Uh, this is why the kingdom of God is a revolution. And the word revolution is the word revolt. To sign up to be a follower of Jesus means you're signing up to be a revolter. And what are you revolting against? You're revolting. Your life is to be, as Jesus' life was, a revolt against every systemic thing and every individual thing that is not in alignment with God's will. You're revolting against the, the dome in which God is not king as you manifest the dome in which God is king. That's the kingdom of God. So there is this warfare dimension of the kingdom of God. But we are not to wage war the way the world wages war. When we say we're to revolt, we've got to be very careful about how we revolt. The way the world revolts is you get mad and you get even. And you revolt out of that anger and you stick it to them. There's been a number of movements throughout history that have had great ideals. Even, even ideals that we would say yes to as kingdom people. But their way of going about moving towards those ideals was a matter of get mad and get even. And so it wasn't kingdom. There's been a number of, of, of movements throughout history that have, have uh, seen that, that uh, we need to set the oppressed free. But they did it with a get mad and get even mindset. So they said, to do that we're going to stick it to the oppressors. We're going to hate those oppressors. We're going to kill those oppressors if necessary. Uh, there's been a number of who have seen that, uh, whether they're Christian or not Christian, they, they've seen that we need to bring good news to the poor. But they did it with a get mad and get even mindset of the world. So they said, we're going to stick it to those rich people, the ones who have been oppressing us. There's been a number of movements throughout history, in, the, in recent history especially, that have seen the, the beauty of, of racial reconciliation but they did it in a worldly way. It's a, it's a get mad and get even kind of a way. So we're gonna do it by punishing those nasty racists. And see, what happens is the goal is, is praiseworthy, but the means is not. And that's not kingdom. A classic example of this, probably the clearest example is, is uh, Karl Marx. If you read the Communist Manifesto, he had a lot, of, a lot of good ideals in there about equality and about justice and things of that sort. But he did it in a, his philosophy was a get mad and get even sort of a way we're going to re- revolt against uh, the rich and, and overthrow it. And the result of it is that, that uh, his thinking was responsible for roughly 50 to 60 million people being killed in the 20th century. That is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has, we're, we're to have this holistic, this beautiful holistic vision where we don't compartmentalize and we don't separate what God does to us from what God wants to do through us. But the way we move towards that holistic vision, that also has to look like Jesus. Dying out of love for his enemies on the cross of Calvary. The kingdom mode of operation is not to get mad and get even. The kingdom mode of operation is to live in self-sacrificial love. We don't conquer our enemies out of love. We try to transform them. And we ourselves are further transformed in the process. The best, the best, the most succinct expression of this kingdom mode of operation is found in Romans chapter 12. Paul says this. Listen to this carefully. Holy Spirit, make this come alive to us. Do not ever repay anyone evil for evil. Opt out of the tit-for-tat violence kingdom. You did this to me, I'm going to do it back to you. Never repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge. Rather, if your enemy is hungry... Do the outrageously crazy thing. Feed them. And remember, when he talks about an enemy, he's not talking about a grouchy neighbor. He's talking to people who are going to see their families get fed to lions. In doing this, he says, you will heap burning coals on your enemy's head. Do not be overcome by evil, but always overcome evil with good. When you respond in kind, evil for evil, you're not overcome with evil. You're defined by that evil. But rather, Paul is saying the, ni- the, the, the meaner your enemy is, the nicer you be back to him. And in doing that, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Now, Paul obviously isn't talking literally like, oh good, you do get to get even after all. <laughs> you, just don't, you look like you're being nice, but really you're really getting vengeance. No. The, the phrase, heap coals of fire on their head, is an idiomatic expression for bring conviction on them. And see, when you love your enemy rather than responding in, in, in hatred and violence, you open up the possibility for them to begin to see what they're doing and repent of what they're doing and eventually be transformed so they no longer are your enemy but become your friend. That's the kingdom mode of operation. We're to trust the power of God's love to do what laws can never do, what policies can never do, what bombs and bullets and tanks can never do, and that is revolutionize people from the inside out. That's the kingdom mode of operation. We have a holistic vision, and we move towards it in a Christ-like way. The best modern example of this that I know, and it's appropriate to mention him since tomorrow is the day that celebrates him, it's Martin Luther King. Uh, a powerful, powerful expression of what I'm talking about. And we could have a debate about, amen, amen. debate about to what degree it's political, to what degree was it was a kingdom, but I'll tell you this, the heart of his philosophy was as pure kingdom as it gets. America was, uh, before the civil rights movement, an apartheid country and blacks had been freed uh, from slavery for about 100 years but because of jim crow laws and other things they were still uh, virtual slaves and there were a lot a number of blacks who were saying at this time that we need to take up arms and have a have a revolution in the world's kind of way get mad and get even and there were some who were saying referring to whites as the white devils and martin luther king came to, along and says that's not the way to do it uh, that's not freedom if you want to be free, really free, and here he's talking the gospel. It's just a stroke of genius that he could do it to such a wide audience in a language that, that, that even non-Christians could understand. But he says, if you want to be free, you can't just fight for your freedom, but out of love, you fight for your, the freedom of your oppressor. Because any human being who is living by oppressing others and feeling the need to oppress others and is devaluing uh, others in contrast to themselves, they are themselves in their own form of bondage. And, and so for us to be free, we need them to be free. That's why he makes that famous uh, uh, quote where he says, Until everyone is free, none of us are fully free. And so he he led a movement where people would be not only interested in their own freedom, yes, they were interested in that, but also the freedom of their oppressor. And In some of his speeches, he would tell people, I don't want you marching here unless you genuinely have love for your enemies. If you have hatred or animosity that will pollute this on a spiritual level, step out until you're ready to step in. But it's about loving your enemies. Here's one of my favorite quotes. He adopted a phrase from uh, Gandhi who used this in India. The phrase was satra graha, which is the Hindi word for the power of truth and love. And and it is my favorite uh, uh, quote from Martin Luther King. It comes from his book, Stride Toward Freedom. He says, satra graha avoids not only external physical violence, but also violence of spirit, violence in the heart, that animosity. Read Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 31 to find out what he's talking about, where Paul says, Purge yourself of all malice in your heart. The nonviolent resistor, and by that he simply means the person who revolts but refuses to use violence doing it. You revolt with your life, not by taking up the sword. The nonviolent resistor not only refuses to shoot his opponent, but also refuses to hate him. And I love this quote. Along the way of life, someone must have the sense enough and the morality enough to cut off the chain of hate. This can only be done by projecting the ethic of love to the center of our lives. And the ethic of love is the ethic that's manifested on the cross of Calvary when he dies for the very people who crucify him. Uh, the wisdom here is profound. It's wisdom that comes out of the Bible. It's wisdom that we so desperately need today. Will someone have the sense of nothing? To opt out of the cyclical chain of violence that so characterizes the world, and it's the job of kingdom people to do this—to to to trust the power of of self-sacrificial love rather than the power of the sword. How we need it today. That's the modus operandi of the kingdom. I want us to listen to one more one-minute segment of Martin Luther King. This is from a—it's on loving your enemies. It's it's from a a little-known sermon that he preached, I think, in 1962 at some little church. Someone had a tape recorder and recorded this. We found it on the internet. Uh, Just listen to the words here and let them sink in.
1: Now, that is the final reason I think that Jesus says, love your enemies. It is this, that love has within it a redemptive power. And that is the power there that eventually transforms individuals. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies. Because if you hate your enemies, you have no way to redeem and to transform your enemies. But if you love your enemies, you will discover that at the very root of love is the power of redemption. You just keep loving people and keep loving them, even though they are mistreating you. Here's a person who is a neighbor, and this person is doing something wrong to you, and all of that. Just keep being friendly to that person. Keep loving them. Don't do anything to embarrass them. Just keep loving them, and they can't stand it too long. (laughs) Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with bitterness because they're mad because you love them like that. They react with guilt feelings, and sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period, but not keep love. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see, it is redemptive. And this is why Jesus says love. There's something about love that builds up. And it's creative. There is something about hate that tears down and is destructive. Love your enemies.
0: Amen. Amen, 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 amen. How the world will be transformed when the body of Christ, as happened with the Civil Rights Movement, when the body of Christ as a whole really gets that down. And we live lives that are revolts. We revolt against everything that is against God and that is against people, that destroys people. We do it in our life. We don't do it by being thinking we're wiser than anyone else, or morally superior to anyone else, platforming or whatever. We do it by serving. We do it by sacrificing. Uh, we refuse to go along with systems that keep people in bondage to racism or to greed or to uh, sexism uh, or to apathy or to what have you. We, we, in our own lives revolt against that. We do it individually and we do it collectively. But we, we revolt not by getting mad and getting even by as Martin Luther King says, just loving them. Just keep loving them. Just keep on serving them. Praise God. Everything Jesus was about were to be about. He cared about the poor. We care about the poor. He cared about the oppressed. We care about the oppressed. He cared about the sick. We care about the sick. He cared about the demonized. We care about the demonized. He cared about those in captivity. We are to care about those in captivity. We are to be a, uh, individually and co- corporately another version of him. The life of the kingdom that he inaugurated in Luke 4, is still with us today. And our job is just to manifest it. Not moralize with it. Stand up on a platform and look down on people. Just come under people and manifest the truth of Luke chapter 4. And it's beautiful. It changes the world. Close your eyes. I'm going to ask two questions here. It's another moment for the Holy Spirit to work with us and just get honest with God. He knows what's there anyways. Might as well just come clean. Two questions. Question number one. Have you... Maybe intentionally, probably unintentionally. Have you adopted the myopic kingdom rather than the holistic kingdom? Have you been, at least to a large degree, doing the kind of individual me and Jesus thing? And that's pretty much the extent of your gospel. Holy Spirit, reveal to us if that's the case. And my question is, will you repent of that now? And turn and just say, Holy Spirit, show me how to not just receive good news, but to be good news. To be good news. And he'll, he'll lead you, and he'll lead your small group, if you're in a small group. Or if it, your ministry, if you're joining a ministry, on how to do that. Our group right now is my small group's feeling led to possibly be ministering to these widows in our neighborhood who are, are shut-ins. The Holy Spirit will lead you. But you have to have a heart that's willing to. Will you right now repent of your individualistic, truncated, myopic, Americanized gospel and say, Lord, I want to live the holistic gospel? If that's on your heart, just pray that prayer in your your mind and then say amen to it and seal it. Holy Spirit, would you right now, for all of us who are seeing that, in fact, we've been duped by a, a half gospel, would you seal this? Just seal it. So we won't forget it and fall back into our habitual ways. Make us revolutionaries who with our lives revolt and thereby bring good news to people who need to see that and hear it and receive it. Holy Spirit, make us individually and collectively good news bearers to the poor and to the oppressed and to those who are on the losing side of racialized structures and to all other people, to refugees, to the outcasts, to the widows, the elderly, Good news even to the environment. Father, raise it up in us. Seal this prayer in Jesus' name. Keep your eyes closed. And now is the second question. Do you, Holy Spirit, help us to see this. Is there anyone in your life that you do not love? Is there anyone in your life that you have animosity towards? Anyone in your life that for any reason, any reason, anyone for any reason you're harboring bitterness or you're wishing them ill, you have no idea how, however justified that animosity is, you can't imagine how it's polluting your life. Holy Spirit, reveal it to us right now. You are the one paying for this. Will you, as the Lord reveals this to you, release it? And ask God for his love towards this enemy. It doesn't mean that you're agreeing with what they did or you're minimizing what they did or what they're still doing. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means you're not going to be burdened down with this animosity, this hatred, this vengeance. Will you commit to doing good to them? It might be a major person, maybe a neighbor issue, it may be your boss, it may be your spouse, maybe your kid, maybe an in law, it may be one of our national enemies. That you harbor hatred towards. Will you release that and turn to the love of God? And if the Holy Spirit's revealing that to you, get a picture of that person. And you can't do it on your own, but you're asking God for help. And Will you just pray the prayer? Father, will you empower me to love this person, to agree with you that they have unsurpassable worth, and to look for ways to actually show that by how I think about them, how I speak about them, and how I treat them. Will you do that? Repent of your malice. Ask God for forgiveness and ask God to empower you. Holy, Holy Spirit, would you now infuse us with the love of God towards our worst enemies, past, present, and even future. Lord, give us the character of Jesus Christ. Whatever they do to us or say about us, seek to destroy us, maybe even successfully, help us to love them. Just keep loving them. Just keep loving them. And use that, Lord, to bring redemption and good news into their life. We want to be good news even to our enemies. And Lord, would you just continue to build Wooden Hills Church as a unified body with a unified vision and a unified character that looks like Luke chapter 4. Manifested here, Lord. Thank you for what you've already done. It's beautiful. We want to see so much more happening, Lord. Bring us together, unite us, bond us together to manifest your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Uh, I'd like to ask the prayer teams to come forward here, and if you want to stay after and pray for any reason whatsoever, I encourage you to do that, just so we'll keep on playing. And uh, if you don't know Jesus Christ, stop by at the community area as the dogs start barking. And. 1st person would love to explain to you how to become a follower of Jesus Christ. God bless you. Go out and build a kingdom. Roof, 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 roof. The dogs are saying amen.